This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. Reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode of this week of Reform This, your faithful uh, Blaze Network radio host and a reformist American Muslim. And I think this is the uh, only place where you can find a leading reformist uh, with a podcast uh, that broadcasts, uh, I hope, not only to America and the West, but to the world, to tell all of you, my faithful listeners, that there are Muslims who are willing to take this on, to take this battle on, to breach the divides between the Muslim world, the Islamic world, and modernity, secular society, and to tackle with you, week to week, those topics that are often too controversial to be addressed in other venues, and especially by American Muslims. I come to you, you know, this week we uh, uh, have come together as a nation as we do every two years and every four years uh, for the specific Olympics. Like now we are gathered around uh, as a nation waving the flag and uh, seeing the best of the best battle with their talents in the sports of their dedication that they've dedicated their life to to win the gold or the silver or the bronze in the Summer Olympics, and this year it's in Rio. There's so much to talk about about the Olympics, but since we are dedicated to Muslim reform, can't help but talk to you about the sort of the um, talk of many of the networks and uh, what has become one of them now all of a sudden has risen as one of the new American Muslim icons, is uh, Ibtihaj Muhammad. This, a exemplary, leading sort of an example of the American dream, a an American Muslim, a African-American woman uh, who chose early on in her life to uh, not only dedicate her life to academics, uh, having gone on scholarship to Duke University, but also picking up the sport of fencing. Now, it's interesting. Uh, um, it's hard to tell, but in some of her interviews, it appears that she picked up the sport of fencing uh, because she felt she could wear the hijab in that sport and thus make a mark. So uh, the question really remains, uh, um, and I'll leave that uh, to you to glean from her interviews, as to whether she entered the sport because of a pure love for fencing or because she wanted to make a dent as what she felt her hijab and who she was represented. Now make no mistake, I, uh, as an American and as a Muslim, am proud of any American Muslim who achieves an exemplar status and becomes uh, an icon respected by uh, the rest of America as representing the best of us. And she went to Rio to do that. And I think uh, not only as a Muslim, but as a woman, uh, she broke 
many ceilings uh, by doing that. Uh, but as is everything, uh, her activities uh, become politicized, uh, but sadly she politicized them herself. And, you know, I think in this program, as I've talked to you before, we teach our youth at the Muslim Liberty Project that we are not Muslims who demand to be American, but we are Americans who happen to be Muslim. And what broke my heart was not the fact that she wore the hijab, not the fact that it was obvious that she was Muslim. I was proud of that fact. Uh, many of the, the people in our organization that I work with, uh, many of the women we know choose to wear the hijab. Uh, but we can't get past the fact, as so many reformers like uh, Ezra Nomani and others have talked about, that the hijab is not only a choice to wear it, but it should be a choice to reject it and not to wear it. And as many politically correct, iconic demonstrations in American society have become the symbol around the head of many women, that where the hijab has become a positive right, but the, those who pick it as a negative right, who choose not to, are ignored, are marginalized as if their voices don't matter. So my question to you is, is as if Jihaj Muhammad went to the White House, uh, taught Michelle Obama how to fence, she was on Ellen DeGeneres, you had op-eds at Time Magazine saying that she should be the one to wave the flag on the opening ceremony, not Michael Phelps. Is that the way we Muslims want to be treated? You know, listen, I, I would have much rather have had an icon become a representation of the best of America and then find out, oh, did you know she happened to be Muslim? But instead, the fact that she wore the hijab, that was the ceiling. The fact that she was obviously Muslim became something to celebrate whether she became disqualified after the first round or won a goal didn't matter. She had already been elevated to being somebody that needed to have her stature on top of the shoulders of everybody else on the team. And even Michael Phelps was being asked in Time Magazine to step down even though he was elected as the most decorated Olympian of all time to step down and allow her to wave the flag and Thankfully, he did not do that because much like affirmative action and other things, I'll tell you as a conservative and, and as somebody who believes in the equality of all under God and before the law, I think people should achieve their success not based on simply quotas or, or a sense of guilt of the society of being mistreated, but because that is equally what they deserve to be rewarded for. And again, Ibtihaj Muhammad, you look at her history, her scholarships, she has her, her own clothing company at Luella, that she calls it, and many other aspects that I think make her, in her own right, somebody that uh, should be recognized. Is she a hero? I don't know. She unfortunately was disqualified, was uh, um, lost after the second round, I believe, last week. But the bottom line is that she made it further than probably 99.99% of fencers in America. So she has a lot to be proud of. Yes, she represented her family well. She represented our country well, and we are proud of her.
But what did she tell the media? She had this megaphone that she had already been using, and she said things like, I feel unsafe all the time. I had someone follow me home from practice and try to report me to police. She wasn't talking about Rio. She said this to the Daily Beast, and this was right on 27th and 7th in New York City. I'm very vocal about these things because I want people to know I'm not a novelty. I'm not special in any way. I'm a woman who wears a hijab, and these are my experiences. Muhammad went on to say, I want people to know that as hard as these racist incidents are on me, they don't come even close to these things that we've seen, like the shooting in North Carolina or the rhetoric around the Khan family at the DNC. It's ridiculous, and we as a country have to change, and I feel like this is our moment. Asked by the Daily Beast what she thought about Donald Trump's contribution, she laughed and said, Who? I'm sorry, what did you say? I don't know him. So listen, last week you and I talked about my concerns about the mishandling of the Gold Star family by Mr. Trump and the campaign. There's a lot to criticize there. But, my God, this is the Olympics. This is a time in which there have been world wars fought, there have been cold wars, there have been calls for the banning of various countries, and yet the the players, the athletes, come together and ignore all of that and fight for their demonstration of the talent, the raw talent of the energy and and training that they did to get there. That's what my Islam, that's what my integrity teaches me. And unfortunately, Ms. Muhammad used her presence there to give the same old trope of victimization that many of the Islamist groups, like the Council for American Islamic Radicalization, CARE, <laughs> Council on American Islamic Relations, but I do think they do American Islamist radicalization or the Islamic side of North America or any other of the alphabet soup of Islamist groups that are fed from often from abroad and feed a propaganda, an anti-American propaganda that says that America are bigots, the West are bigoted against Muslims and she brought it with her into this charged global atmosphere and listen if there's anything she should stand for why not talk about the treatment of women in Saudi Arabia where they finally had one athlete in which for a long time the Olympics had been talking about banning them because of the way they treat women? Why not talk about Muslim women in Iran or in Qatar or in Dubai or in Pakistan who are victims of honor abuse, honor violence, and honor killings? Why not use your... I couldn't even find... She may be the first, not only... She's being recognized because of being the first American Muslim woman wearing a hijab. But I believe she may be the first American Muslim woman to be in the Olympics. Why not just let it speak for itself and let your athletic prowess speak for itself and be part of Team USA rather than make it seem on foreign soil in Brazil that America makes you scared? Some of that may be true. I'm not going to... to deny what her truth is but really you look at the statistics do we really think that muslims are treated more poorly than the jewish community with the anti-semitism that is rampant in many parts of the community here or in the west and yet how many jewish athletes and 
the Olympics from many Western countries go and talk about the neo-Nazi, neo-fascism that is spreading through the West and the way the Jewish community is being treated. No, they let their athletic prowess speak for itself. And then later, as biographies are done and longer profiles are done, people will find out that they happen to be Jewish. But unfortunately, the Islamist mindset is that their Muslim identity comes first. The victimization because of their religious choices comes first and is beat with which they beat others with over their head in a metaphorical way while their national identity is sort of left at the door. And I'm, I know that sounds harsh, but listen, you have Russian athletes, Saudi athletes, Iranian athletes. Yes, they live in autocracies, but for crying out loud, we live in the greatest, most free country in the world. And the Muslim athlete who gets the most attention doesn't allow that national patriotism to dominate a verbiage of her thanking and, and loving this country as a symbol, but instead the media attention is about her victimization and how she represents this community that's so beleaguered as if we need a leg up and some type of affirmative action in media. And I'm offended. It's this bigotry of low expectations that is killing us and, by the way, marginalizes reform. And at the end of the day, what I found the most offensive is that here's somebody who would be somebody that I want my children to be proud of. But unfortunately, the message emanating from her lips is one of weakness and not of just simply pro-Americanism and being part of Team USA that is just so dominant in this Olympics. No, her legacy or interviews is going to be about how she was victimized and hated in New York City, how she got put into extra uh, inspections at the airports and all these other things that she has said on NBC, at the Daily Beast and other media outlets. Instead of just keeping the victimization at home and talking about her pride in being American and how she can do things that you cannot do in any other Muslim-majority country. Unfortunately, she did not do that. When we come back, I want to talk about the Muslim athletes you may not have heard about. This is Zudi Jasser with Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. Reaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This. It's great to be with you. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for listening. And I hope after you listen, you, you leave and you realize that you get a little dose of something that you may not be able to get anywhere else on the internet and podcasts or online. And, you know, we're talking about, uh, we're right in the middle of the Olympics right now. And uh, the talk of the week was not only Michael Phelps and just the domination of so much of the gold medals that uh, America is winning. And God bless our country. God bless our athletes for their their 
representation of what freedom can do to the human spirit. And there's a reason why Olympics to Olympics, the United States plays such a dominant role. It's not because we have a monopoly on character, that we have a monopoly on human beings or humanity, but freedom and liberty allows a society in which we can rise above, in which it drives and gives people that fertile soil to plant the best of what they are and to grow that seed and to take it to the world and dominate. And that's exactly what we're doing. But it's interesting, you know, with all the talk of the Muslim, American Muslim hijabi who entered the sport of fencing and now became quickly a, a representation of another broken ceiling in America. And that's great. You know, I think uh, uh, hats off to her for doing that. But I hope she did it because she loved the sport of fencing, not just because she wanted to do something that she felt she could have a niche in and do it because she had a hijab and, and leave a mark. But there's something else here is that can you name other Muslim athletes? You know, I, I remembered back as I saw some of her interviews this week. The president on December 6th, uh, 2015, was uh, giving a Oval Office speech about terrorism and the threat. And Donald Trump at the time was uh, live tweeting. And uh, he, you know, tweeted at the time uh, as the president was talking from the Oval Office. The president said, uh, you know, he had talked about many American Muslim contributions to America, and he talked especially about many Muslim athletes. And Donald Trump tweeted, big night on Twitter tonight, I'll be live tweeting. And then he... So the president says that Muslim Americans are our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers, and Trump responds, he really couldn't name one. And then there was a Twitter storm that followed with people naming Muslim Americans and reminding Mr. Trump that he had actually taken a number of photos with people like Muhammad Ali, who recently passed, and and so many others. And we could go through a list, but the bottom line is, is there have been many American Muslims that have served in professional sports and, and are well known, but just many may not have known they were Muslim. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the basketball player that now has become very outspoken about Islam and the threat of terrorism, but again, he's often apologetic. But again, as a as a basketball player, short of Michael Jordan, he's probably one of the top five, top ten basketball players of all time. Ahmed Rashad, the wide receiver for the Minnesota Vikings, Hakeem Olajuwon, Shaquille O'Neal, basketball, NBA, Muhammad Wilkerson, the New York Jets. Akib Talib, Denver Broncos. Adin Zeko, soccer. Masoud Ozil, soccer. Sharif Abdurrahim, the Grizzlies, basketball. Rashid Wallace, the Blazers. Larry Johnson. Bernard Hopkins. Amir Khan, boxing. Neil Yakupov, hockey with the Oilers. Marat Safin, tennis. Rashad Salam, Chicago Bears. Mixed martial arts, Khabib Nurmagomedov, other soccer players, and on. Now, the list from women is not as long, and 
we hope will become much larger. There were known women such as Abdul Qadir, a basketball player for Indiana State, Kulsum Abdullah, a weightlifter, Mona Saraji, snowboarding, Olympic shot putter Leila Rejabi. So the bottom line is, is there have been many Muslims. And this isn't to criticize Mr. Trump. Again, this is, he was uh, in his normal uh, uh, Twitter reflexive nature. But to think now, as we have Miss Muhammad as the icon of breaking these ceilings, there have been many Muslims who, uh, some have gone to the Olympics and many served in professional sports and brought a lot of joy to Americans who were Americans that loved their sports and did great in them and didn't wear their Muslim identity on their head or on their sleeves to make it obvious what they were. That's what America's about. E pluribus unum, out of many, one. Team USA is one. We don't divide each other. And, you know, I have to tell you, this president and the left so far is much more, they were supposed to be the, this was supposed to be the, the presidency to end racism, to end the divisions, but I it has divided us. Now, is it their fault or is it the right's? I'll leave it to all of you to decide that. But the bottom line is, is somebody who goes, joins a sport to become part of Team USA should not exploit that platform to teach the rest of America a lesson. And instead of using that platform to look at the bigger part, which are the billions that live under the oppression of Islamist regimes, use that platform to say that we as Team USA not only are dominating the Olympics, if you're going to make it political, which you probably shouldn't do anyway while you're at the Olympics, but before or after, demand that the Iranians, the Pakistanis, the Afghanis, the Qataris, the Egyptians, and others have equalities and stop the discrimination based on gender and the gender apartheid in the sports arena and elsewhere. But that didn't happen. So, unfortunately, the Islamist domination of our identity continues and it went on and continued into the Olympics. And I hope the day will come when our children's children will can choose to wear the hijab or not. But those Muslim women who achieve notoriety in sports will be just as much recognized for being Muslim because they chose not to wear the hijab as much as the ones who choose to wear the hijab that they not be recognized even before they won any medals because they're Muslims and we want to make sure that not only we don't offend them, but we lift them up because, you know, they're, they're being treated in a, in a bigoted way. Come on. We don't need that. We want to achieve what we do as a faith community at the equality of every other faith community, not because people feel sorry about us. That's the American way and that's, what I believe I was taught in my Islam. Now, yes, have there been acts of bigotry against Muslims? There have been. And, and, and as uh, the fencer uh, uh, Muhammad noted, the shooting in North Carolina. Now, the question is whether that was related to a, a enraged tenant at a apartment complex that the Muslim couple lived in that was killed and murdered by this radical extremist who was driven by rage? I don't know. 
But the bottom line is, is those stories are few and far be between for somebody to clear that as a problem and not mention San Bernardino, Orlando, Boston, Fort Hood, Paris, Belgium, and all the different towns and cities that have been attacked by radical Muslims and the thousands upon thousands that have been injured or hundreds of thousands or millions that are in war in Syria or Egypt because of not only the dictatorships and the autocracies, but the Islamist movements that don't care or value human life the way we've learned to in the West. And it's time for us to reform the ideas and stop being the victims and blaming the very country that gives us the oxygen and the freedom and the space to live like no other place. And I believe that the best way to melt away that bigotry is not by wearing it on our sleeve or on our head. Yes, wear the hijab if you choose, so be it. But the best way to melt away the bigotry is not to just ask for it or demand it, but to be exemplars of American freedom and liberty, to be free, to serve this country, to choose to not only serve in its sports, but in its military, its police, as many Muslims do, but without expectations to say that we are Muslims, not who demand to be American, but we are Americans that happen to be Muslim. God bless our athletes, and uh, as we continue to watch the Olympics, whether regardless of faith, regardless of ethnicity, that we come together as a nation and celebrate the, the glory that is the talent that our Americans and all people of faith from all over the world that came together in Rio. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. When we come back, we'll talk about the latest in the global war on radical Islam. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something, and progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another segment of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you for joining me as we try to breach the fault lines and have conversations that Many will not have, and I think you'll be pleased to to know that not only do we br do we approach these subjects thoughtfully and emotionally, but as not only as an American but as a Muslim who loves my faith, and sometimes my faith community needs a tough love, not apologetics, not denial or marginalization, but a tough love. And as we look at the global war the threat upon our society in the West, it never sleeps, and the attacks are getting closer together, as we've talked before. But on one item, you know, we talked about the victimization. No story is, no story is wackier than the 
clock boy story of this uh, young boy who uh, took a box of wires, which he said was a clock, into his class in Texas. And sure enough, he was pulled out. They were concerned that uh, it was a bomb. Security was called, and it became known as the clock boy story. He became an icon uh, in his uh, junior high school and around the world. Quickly, his name became known. Even President Obama was tweeting about it, telling him to bring his clock to the White House. He then visited with the senior staff, leadership at Google, went to the White House, and on. The story after that was he became CARES, the Council on American Islamist Radicalization's most popular American Muslim. He won an award in 2015 for them. And then the family then goes on this world clockboy tour. Where do they go? To some of the most oppressive countries on the planet, sponsored by Gulf states, by, I believe, Qatar, but many in the OIC. He even went to Sudan, and his father's website, if you had looked at some of the postings of his father, was a 9-11 truther who doubted whether 9-11 was actually done by al-Qaeda and cited wacky theories like Rosie O'Donnell did and other whack jobs who believed that somehow 9-11 might not have been a reality but actually was an inside job, quote-unquote. And this guy also was running for president in Sudan while he sat in Texas. And this guy's child becomes a icon of Islamophobia and bigotry in America and a picture of sort of how crazy the national security apparatus is when in fact the counterterrorism apparatus tells every American, see something, say something, and that's what his teacher did. That's what Ahmed's teacher did. And for that, she's paying a price. But that story was over a year ago, and now what's happening in August 2016? Well, they have threatened to file a suit a year ago, and sure enough, they leave Texas. They pull him out of school. They don't even put him in a nearby school. They say that that incident caused him such pain and grief that they had to pull him out of that class, pull him out of that school, couldn't even find another school because... He was so well-known and persecuted that they moved up and the entire family goes to Qatar and he gets a scholarship to go to school there. And now the family's living there. So let's say he had been discriminated against, which certainly the clock, if you look at it in x-ray and box of wires, could have been anything. But even with that, turns out to be an error of judgment that's what see something say something means after what happened his notoriety and and the the um, implications of what he did to his own publicity was something he self-imposed and his family imposed upon him to exploit what happened to him no different than the flying imams exploited what they what their prayer at the gate in phoenix did or in Minneapolis on their way to Phoenix, did in which they were pulled off the flight. And yes, many of the things that were done to them as they were pulled off might not have been appropriate, but ultimately they filed a suit. Settlement was unknown. But they tried to sue the passengers, and luckily Congress intervened in 2009, I believe, and gave them immunity 
thankfully, otherwise see something, say something becomes a battle of fears. But they settled in American airlines then, at the times U.S. Airways settled for an undisclosed amount and basically capitulated to the shakedown. And I think this is what's happening now. And it's amazing to me that they, they're still American citizens, but, I, you know, listen, if you go move to Qatar and that's where you're living, they should renounce their American citizenship. So these, quote-unquote, former American citizens are now suing Texas, suing the school district where he was, and ultimately attacking America legally through lawfare while they sit in Qatar and an Islamist nation whose Muslim Brotherhood ideologues sit there and spread the cancer of anti-Westernism ideologies through Al Jazeera and other networks funded by that theocratic government, which is on the list of Human Rights Watch and other human rights organizations because of abuses of slavery and other aspects. They sit there and sue America and get media attention for that because of, quote-unquote, the way he, Ahmed, the, the clock boy, was treated when he was going to school in Texas. So the shakedown continues. And, you know, that story's not going to go away. But I do think that there's a lot to be learned there. I hope the school district doesn't settle. I hope media continues to pay attention to it and I hope the Islamists are marginalized for here's a, a kid that became the cause celeb of many Islamist groups in America and then it became revealed that here he went and part of his clockboy tour was to meet with President Bashir, the war criminal of Sudan. Where was the media, where were the Muslim groups condemning that? a genocidal war criminal who can't leave Sudan because he'd be brought on war crime charges. Clock boy and his family go and visit because his father wants to run, according to his YouTube videos, for president of Sudan. It's just a crazy world that we live in. The other story this week, you know, I think that, that speaks to reform issues is a nuclear physicist that had been a known hero in Iran had defected to the United States, but then went back and got a hero's welcome. And with WikiLeaks and with the unprotected server of Hillary Clinton, her emails were released and this nuclear scientist's name was revealed in it. And shortly thereafter, now he was assassinated, executed, I should say, by the Iranian government. And I think it bears mentioned to say that the current Obama administration's position of weakness, subservient, and appeasement to the Iranian regime has given them a green light to act as viciously as possible to anyone who may have a hint of being an asset for the United States. Now, the CIA will never recognize that he was actually an asset, but odds are very high that he was. Many times, these folks that defect and then go back are turned and then we'll go back to pretend to have been an agent for Iran here and then turn as a double agent to go back to Iran and provide us with information. And and really, if you look at the, the information that we've had, often it is intelligence operations that gives us that information, not the, the deceptive and dishonest regimes that hide things deep below yards and and. and yards of concrete 
but the reality is it's the human intelligence that tells us what's happening. And to see him executed shortly after the release of his name and Hillary Clinton's emails publicly tells you that at the minimum it is open season on American assets inside Iran and around the world as they saw us bring a pallet of $400 million to Iran and then release our four prisoners and then we had others taken soon thereafter. It tells you that one of the reasons we don't negotiate with terrorists is we don't negotiate with terrorists. It then allows them to be taken more so that we have to negotiate again. And not only is it immoral and corrupt, it breeds more because weakness begets weakness and strength begets fear of us from our enemies and Iran is an enemy. And they assassinated a nuclear physicist that obviously had been working against us but then defected. So at some point I hope we get leadership in the White House that realizes that our only allies in Iran are the Green Revolution, are the reformists, our only allies in Saudi Arabia are the freedom seekers in the prisons who want religious freedom that question the authorities, the autocrats, and the monarchs. Those are our real allies. And last, I think when you look at the impact of Iran, people say, well, you know, what's happening in northern Iraq? Why is it that ISIS continues, even though they're taking, being decimated in certain areas with our bombing raids, why is it that we cannot defeat them? It has to do with national sovereignty. And it's not just about ISIS's strength or its social media platform. It is about the fact that they have been able to insinuate themselves and to fill the vacuum of the ideas that are being decimated in the Middle East with a rise of a sense of community, not by a nation-state, but by an Islamist Islamo-nationalism or the Islamic State. And Iran has facilitated that. And when we come back, I want to talk to you about how the Sunni-Shia conflict feeds right into the growth of Islamism, be it Shiite Islamism or Sunni Islamism. And the only way to defeat that is protecting national sovereignty, but not fascist sovereignty, as in Assad, Saddam Hussein, Mubarak, King Abdullah, King Salman now, but liberal, secular national sovereignty. This is Zudi Jasser with Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Coming up today on Pat and Stu. Should a woman be spanked? Are you asking? Or, oh, this uh, is no, story. this is the story. Oh, okay. Uh, this is the responses of four men in the New York Daily Mirror in the 1950s, and they are absolutely incredible. Uh, Miguel Matos from Brooklyn says, why not? If they don't know how to behave by the time they're adults, they should be treated like children and spanked. <laughs> Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This, your faithful Blaze Network radio host, bringing you the one-of-a-kind podcast in which we address 
the central areas, the front lines of reformed bridge, the gap between the Islamist ideas that want to destroy us in the West, land of freedom, and how do we confront those ideas to bring the faith that I love into modernity. Is it possible? I hope so. I pray so. And I know that the road ahead is not easy. Now, I think this sort of brings it all home. We talked in the first segment about the the importance that we American Muslims not be victims, that we not wear front and center always how we're being manipulated, I think, by the Islamists into always being fearful of being attacked by bigots and other haters, if you will, that in fact our identity needs to be strengthened by not, again, victimization. And again, the left feeds this with the movements like Black Lives Matter and others, but rather to focus on the fact that it's our national sovereignty, our national unity that provides that inspiration that can be the antidote to the Islamism that's all about faith identity and not about pluralism and equality under God, but not under a singular faith, and for Muslims, especially not under Islam. And that's what the Islamic State is all about. So if you look at what Iran does, Iran's Shiite Islamism is about hegemony against the Sunnis, against any non-Shia Islamist. So the Khomeinists have oppressed the secularists, the non-Muslims, the Baha'is, anyone who gets in their way, Modern Muslims, secular Muslims, they've assassinated, tortured, imprisoned, deported, and destroyed now since 1979 and the revolution. And as we pulled out of Iraq, they're beginning to move into Iraq. Uh, Iraq. And they've also created a client state in Syria in which Assad would not be around. I truly believe that Assad would have lost the revolution to the rebels who were not as radicalized as they are today since ISIS arose in 2013 and 14, but he would have lost it to the diverse revolution of not only Sunnis, but Shia and Druze and Alawites and Christians and others who were fighting against the socialist Ba'athist fascists of the Assad regime. And now the Assad regime has, you know, as much as it may be called the Ba'ath Socialist Party of National Socialist Party of Syria, it is really turned into a arm of the Khomeinists, the Islamist Shia, as the Alawites are an offshoot of, and the Assad regime has allowed the Khomeinists to not only send them billions in support, but weapons and Hezbollah troops in the tens of thousands that have fought alongside them against the rebellion. But if you look in Iraq, you know, one of the reasons, and I've talked to military folks about this repeatedly, you know, they keep saying, well, why is, why do the socialist Ba'ath in Iraq, Ba'ath means liberation party, but in actuality, it's like saying Nazi in the Arab community. Why do the Ba'ath just stand back and let ISIS take over? ISIS walked through northern Iraq and took over land with with a lot of weapons, but hardly any artillery, if you will, or, or, or tanks, etc. But the Ba'ath just let them walk through. Why did they do that? A bunch of Toyotas <laughs> in their, in their uh, trains of Toyotas and not tanks. Well, it has to do with the fact that 
the you know first of all the Bush administration was criticized initially for doing what was called debathification. It was felt that we went in, decapitated the Saddam regime, a Baathist, national socialist, fascist, vicious, vicious dictatorship, which had killed hundreds of thousands, both in the Iran-Iraq war, up to a million dead, and also used chemical weapons against its own people, the Kurds. So there was no, there was, I think, a, a blessing in ending that regime. But debathification was the sense that the entire military was evil. And again, as a Syrian-American, I'll tell you, I'm not that far from that belief. I think the Ba'ath military in Syria is, for the most part, entirely evil. But you also have to realize that it was also a jobs program for one out of five, one out of six people often in these military regimes. So many of them are not true-believing Ba'athists. So that the true-believing Ba'athists may be the generals for sure, the starred community, but the lower-level officers and the enlisted may not have been. So debathification actually left Iraq disordered without an infrastructure. And there may have been alternative ways to root out the ideology of Ba'athism without destroying the military infrastructure. But the old Ba'athist leadership then were Sunni, and Iraq was majority Shia, and we saw that part of the problem, especially as we began to leave and there was less chaperoning in Iraq, that the problem became basically a Shia takeover of Iraq, that it was not a democracy, that ultimately Iran was pulling the strings for Baghdad, and that even though there were some clerics like Sistani that appeared to be moderate, the the majority of the Shiite clerics were basically working for the Iranian regime and that Iraq was being slowly taken over, that its parliament was not responsive to a diverse Kurdish, Sunni, previously Ba'athists, and diverse Yazidi and and Christian and other Assyrian, uh, all the minority communities of Iraq were unrepresented or very poorly represented, and thus we've seen, especially in the last few years, thanks to the Obama surrender of Iraq, a loss to the Iranian hegemony. So ISIS comes in from Syria. Assad allows the radicalization of the Muslim community and uses that foil to exert a genocide on his own people, killing over a half a million, 98% of whom were Sunni Muslims that were being slaughtered by the Assad regime. And he creates and allows there to exist, just as he released al-Qaeda from the jails of Syria, the ISIS genocidal military, the Islamists, the jihadists came from all over the planet to set up shop in Raqqa and northeastern Syria. And in order to have a more broader base, if you will, they also spread into northern Iraq. So why did the Iraqi military sort of let this happen? Well, the previous Ba'athists were Sunni. This was a maybe far, far more radical ISIS military, militant Islamists, not Ba'athists that were coming in, but they said, listen, the enemy enemy is my friend and these guys are coming in. They they hate the Shia lords in Baghdad, so we will allow them to come in and destabilize further Iraq. And that's why you see that destabilization. But at the core is that the Iraqi soldiers began to no longer love their country. They lost their national identity. 
because it was taken over by foreign powers, by the influence of the Iranian Shia Islamists, the Khomeinists, who also really don't care about even Iranian or Iraqi national identity. Does Hezbollah care about Lebanese nationalism or Lebanese identity? It does not. It's fighting in Syria, it's fighting and also gets weapons from Iraq, from Iran, etc. So this hegemony of the Khomeinists through Iran to Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon with Hezbollah is not about, it's the loss of national sovereignty to the Islamist movement of the Khomeinists. And its equal and opposite reaction is the Sunni Islamist fanaticism of Hamas, of ISIS in Syria and northern Iraq, of Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, and of the Wahhabi Islamists and Salafi Jihadists that create groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. So the national sovereignty that would unite groups like the Kurds with the Yazidis and others is being lost. That is what is being destroyed, and the only way to bring it back is to begin programs in which, look at, why have the Kurds never killed that we know of an American? Are they Democrats? No, not necessarily. There's problems in their governance, but they are not radicalized Islamists. Why? Their Kurdish nationalism has always filled that part of their heart in which the Islamist fascism would have filled, and it has inoculated them from Islamist radicalization as Sunni Muslims, which the Kurds are. Similarly, Iraqi nationalism, if it could be strengthened and unified under Yazidi, Assyrian, Christian, Sunni Muslim, Shia Muslim, unity against the Shia Islamists of the Khomeinists and the Alawite Islamists of the Assadists of Ba'athism, etc., that would allow, I think, the protection and the de-radicalization, counter-radicalization, counter-caliphism, which is necessary. The only way to defeat caliphism and Islamist state ideology is to strengthen national sovereignty of Syria with the liberals and the different groups, bring them together against both ISIS and Assadism, to strengthen the unity of various groups in Iraq against both Shia Islamism and Sunni Islamism, and to defeat the Islamist movements like Hezbollah, the Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, be it Sunni or Shia. So at the end of the day, this national sovereignty is the only solution to political Islam and Islamist hegemony, be it Sunni or Shia. Without national sovereignty, the Shia Islamists will try to dominate and will ultimately get to a cataclysmic war against Sunni Islamists. And as long as we think of the Middle East only through the prism of Islamism, be it Sunni or Shia, we are going to feed both sides of the equation, no different than we did in the Iran-Iraq war, no different than now as we feed the Iranians their $150 billion. We don't want them necessarily to get nuclear weapons, but yet the Obama administration seems to be walking them to that, which then demands that we walk the Wahhabi Saudi radicals into similar type of strength. That cycle has to end. We need to work to regime change, not regime empowerment. And what we're doing now with handing Iran billions and buying Saudi oil and helping them build their institutions is regime development and empowerment, not regime change. The future of the Middle East, the future of world security is in regime change, is in regime destruction for the empowerment of revolutions from Syria to Egypt to Saudi Arabia. Yes, it might get more chaotic. 
Yes, there may be Islamists that get some oxygen from these vacuums. There's no doubt. But I can tell you that plan A, which is to just pull back and let Russia determine what's going to happen or let just sort of the Darwinian evolution evolve, is actually proving, as the Obama administration's eight years has proven, to be the worst option which allows the most vicious Islamists to rise. And protecting dictatorships proved in the 20th century, as Condoleezza Rice said, we exchanged security, we exchanged democracy for security, and we got neither. Because these dictatorships fed off of radicalizing their community, and their Islamic states that use Sharia, and that Sharia instrument is a restriction of freedom in every way as a quasi-theocracy, and they are no different. The Saudis are no different than ISIS. Uh, the LCCs of the world might claim about reform against violence and militancy, but yet they don't talk about democracy, freedom, liberty, or real modernization because they want the West to believe they're the only solution to terrorism and militancy, when in fact the main solution is our Muslim reform movement. It's true reform. It's a call for the equality of men and women, and it's a call for true national sovereignty under liberalism. And that's what I wish our Olympic athletes that fought, whose families came here to be free, that struggled to rise to the top of their sport, and we saw with Ms. Muhammad that she'd know she seemed to have squandered that ability to be an icon for just Team USA that happened to be Muslim. So I think in all of these fronts we have some solutions, we have some problems, but we will ultimately find a way to come together and move solutions, not only domestically, but what we do here can be transplanted globally as messaging to defeat the militants that are threatening our security. This is Zudi Jasser with Reform This. Thank you for joining me again in another episode on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network.